0: Hello, I'm
1: Matt Chorley. This is the Red Box podcast featuring the best of my Times radio show, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Now, some of you have been posting reviews on iTunes saying you'd like to hear more from Times columnists. So we're going to put that right in today's episode. Finkelvich are here. Daniel Finkelstein, David Aronovich, picking apart the news and squabbling over autographs. We'll also ask if the government was a car, what would it be? Deborah Mattinson pollster from Britain Thinks, and Chris Curtis from YouGov, casting an eye over public opinion, including, of course, uh, Gavin Williamson. Just a reminder, if you want to come on my radio show and take part in the quiz, can you get to number 10, then get in touch with me, email matt.chorley at and we'll get you on the radio very soon indeed. But now, it's time for Finkovich. Now then, I thought this morning, let's talk um, resignations or or the absence of resignations. Lots of calls, obviously, for uh, Gavin Williamson to resign, um, but he's making clear he's not going anywhere. Um, David, do you you think resignations, it's the obvious thing, you know, it's the next stage in the unfolding of a crisis, but do they make any difference? Should...
2: I really wanted to hear what Danny had to say about this because both of his and my recollections of resignations go back some way. So I was just thinking back to 2006 and I had lunch with a chap called Charles Clark. You may remember him. He was in the Blair government, served in lots of posts, including education secretary. And he was in a, a bit of bother because something had happened at the Home Office. He was Home Secretary at the time. We went out uh, and I bought him, I think it was the last lunch I ever bought for a politician at the Cinnamon Club down in Westminster. Um, um, and he said, well, no, you know, it is difficult because of these, um, uh, prisoners, uh, foreign prisoners who had been released, who probably should have been deported, but, you know, etc, etc, etc. He was fairly confident within two days he was gone and uh, forced to resign. And I was comparing it with the Gavin Williamson case and I thought, well, if Clarence Clark had to go, there's no question but that Gavin Williamson would have to go. I mean, because his level of culpability, uh, as far as I understand it, is really much greater. But that that started making me think about the circumstances under which resignations do happen do they ever really happen for any other reason than that pressure builds up so that people have to go is there ever any I mean people always go back to Lord Carrington at the time of the Falklands War but outside that kind of strange example do people ever actually resign because they think they've done a bad job or they should have done better rather than that we kind of create a storm and then they have to and I thought Danny might have some recollections about that.
1: Yeah, what what do you make of that, Danny? Do people ever resign for the right reason other than just you've been on the front pages? Absolutely,
2: it is
3: occasional, but uh, one person uh, who did that while I was working with him, actually, was David Willits when he was... Uh, the postmaster general, uh, basically the paymaster general rather, the minister uh, in charge of sort of coordinating government policy during at the end of the major government. He was severely criticised um, for his role in a scandal involving select committees. He definitely could have held on, uh, but he decided immediately that he would resign. And actually, I think it was probably from the, his career point of view, as well as on a question of honour, the, the right thing to do. Um, and he recovered and was ultimately... Um, a well-respected university's minister, so it has happened. The other person who did it, um, and this was even odder, I think it's probably a unique resignation, was Estelle Morris, who didn't resign as Labour Education Secretary over um, some sort of sharp scandal, but over her view that she wasn't reaching targets and that she couldn't do the job. I think she's actually a very impressive and nice person, Estelle Morris, but I respect the fact that she felt that she couldn't do that. I don't think I've ever heard of a resignation apart from hers for that reason Uh, but generally people do try and ride it out Uh, and um, what brings them down in the end um, is usually a second blast something else that happens which reveals the fact that they haven't got parliamentary support I wouldn't be at all surprised if that's uh, what now happens to Gavin Williamson Um, he he might survive this with the support of Ten Downing Street for all sorts of different reasons, but um, he po- probably uh, wouldn't survive a second wave, as the uh, current phrase goes. And and I think it's it's hard to see what that would be at this moment. But uh, it's hard, you know, there there often is one which we haven't perceived. Well, I mean, there's a sort of ready-made second wave in the fact we've got GCSE
1: results on Thursday, presumably. And even allowing for the change that they've made and the U-turns to now allow teachers' grades and so on, if some children still are unhappy with their Results and MPs get a deluge of emails again, uh, being unhappy. Then, then potentially that could you know it certainly keeps the story going, which is one of the reasons why uh, government sometimes you know Danish Street ends up concluding, look, you've got to go because we need to put a lid on this thing.
3: Yes, I mean, look, it's, it, in the end, these things are political calculations. We used to have a, and I think this was the basis of Lord Carrington's resignation, we used to have a sort of uh, what was called the Critchell-Down principle, which was, you know, whoever's fault it was, and in that case it had been a civil service decision about an obscure matter, uh, the Critchell-Down decision in the 50s, but the minister had to resign anyway. Uh, and um, this is um, not a principle now that we hold, and... Um, and um, one of the reasons it became well known is it, it was slightly absurd. It wasn't the person who was involved in it. On the other hand, it reinforced the idea that ministers are responsible. Uh, but David's correct. That now is unusual. And you know, while I was um, in uh, in in working for the government in the in the nineteen nineties, it, it it was regarded as as a sort of, um, you know, you didn't want that would be an even bigger disaster. And I always felt, well, actually, I think holding on to people is often a bigger disaster because it suggests the government doesn't take response, as, as a whole doesn't take responsibility uh, for the situation that it's created. And it's all
1: about, you know, this is this sort of attitude towards the media and, uh, you know, you're not going to hound us out, you know, um, everybody hates us and we don't care almost. So just sort of ploughing on. Uh, regardless, do you think long term it, it causes damage, David, to a government if if there's a sort of succession of people who've got themselves in a mess but but don't have to to carry the can?
2: and also, I mean, we've got to the situation now whereby, and and this was what was very different between what was happening to Charles Clark. Charles Clark, there was the Home Office, and the Home Office had been doing some things which he was responsible for but these days it's always possible as Gavin, if anybody heard gavin williamson this morning um uh, firstly it isn't him it's off qual um uh he was assured by etc etc et and there are so and, and one of the things that's happened over the course of the last two decades is the growth of what the uh, political scientist john king calls monetary democracy that is You add a layer of monitoring to distance the politician from the decision for all kinds of reasons, not least that the public and the press tend to demand it. But then that then adds a that creates a reason as to why you say that you're not actually responsible for it. And it's happening time and time again at the moment. It's just almost it's it's almost perpetual, even if the government has fed in the original instructions under which the uh, semi-autonomous body makes that kind of makes that kind of decision. And that makes it very, very difficult to call um, because there's always... you know. The other thing he said was, well, actually, the same thing was written off by the devolved authorities that are not all Conservatives. They are Labour and, uh, and Liberal Democrat or whatever they are in the case of Wales, etc. So you can't just kind of put it to me. And that gives him another level of distance from whatever the decision was. Um, and you're left really dealing with somebody who essentially says... It's not very much to do with me, Gov. Um, <laughs> and the big question, I think, for Boris Johnson is whether or not he really accepts expects the British public to accept that as an explanation for very much longer. And uh, if I were him, I wouldn't like to bank on it.
1: Uh, somebody's well, we've just been talking. Somebody's just texted in saying Lord Pearson of Rannoch resigned as UKIP leader in 2010 on the grounds he wasn't much good at party politics, <laughs> um, which seems a reasonable explanation.
2: Well, on on the secondary
1: ground that he was UKIP leader and that's what they do. Um, the uh, I, I think one of my favourite um, uh, resignations uh, actually was somebody else. That was Lord Bates when he I think he was an international development minister and turned up a couple of minutes late to answer a question in the House of Lords, and he resigned. He said that, you know, I should have been in my place and I shall be offering my resignation to the Prime Minister. And uh, it was at the time when everyone was quitting Theresa May's government and she basically said to him, you're not getting out of it that easily and uh, refused to accept his resignation. He then continued in office for some time. But, yeah, uh, apologising to be a few minutes late um, is, is probably the nicest grounds for residing, <laughs> even if he didn't get away with it. Um, let's move on and talk about uh, politicians' private lives. Um, not uh, not in the UK, unusually this time man, uh, but in the, U- in the US, a story resurfing about Joe Biden and his second wife, uh, Jill, accused on the eve of the Democrat convention of lying about how they met to conceal an extramarital affair. Uh, They'd always claimed to have uh, met on a blind date, Um, but uh, fresh claims that might not have totally been the case. Uh, Do we still care about um, politicians' private lives, Danny?
3: Um, Well, uh, I think... The, the, that in this in this particular instance, the problem with it will be not telling the truth about it, uh, but it's, you know but it 's still a contest with donald Trump he 's not going to lose an immorality contest with Donald Trump, who himself obviously had you know myriad affairs and, uh, and and three wives and so uh, that is is unlikely but the um, uh, nevertheless, because Joe Biden wants to defeat donald trump partly on the issue of character this is mildly embarrassing It is a bit surprising because i did you know i've read uh the joe and jill biden account of how they met more than once uh and it's you know he's been there it's 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 now been uh decades obviously uh so it is a bit surprising that it surfaced in this way my view overall is that uh Things that happen in your private life may not be resignation issues, but they do matter. They are about people's character and who people are, and um, it's useful and interesting to know about them. Some people take a much more extreme view and say they've got absolutely nothing to do with the public domain, so people shouldn't even run that sort of story.
1: What about you, David? Does this matter now, in, as D- Danny was saying, in an con- electoral contest with Donald Trump, well, the exact timing s- of meeting, meeting your future wife seems less of an issue? I have to say that
2: when Danny mentioned this uh, before, we, we're not, I, had, I, I hadn't missed the story altogether and had no idea. And it seems to go back a very long time. I mean, I, I'm now reading it. New York Post, which I think is not favourable to uh, the Democrats, said that her previous husband said he first suspected an affair in 1974. <laughs> when his wife passed on meeting an up-and-coming rock star who was set to play at his Delaware club. In other words, well, when she said she wouldn't meet this up-and-coming rock star, I knew something was going on. And I know exactly when it was. He said, Bruce Springsteen was going to play at the Stone Balloon. <laughs> um, <laughs> is, I mean, the main, the main
1: takeaway from this story is, again, just quite how old and how uh, Joe Biden is and how long he's been sort of... Going around the block, that a story about you know from the mid '70s is still sort of pertinent uh, to his political career. When When he ran for
3: the Senate, he was he was he wasn't old enough to be in the Senate when he ran. He was 29 years old. He became 30 between being elected to be a senator and being sworn in. And the other thing that happened was that his wife uh, died in a car crash, which is just immediately before the incidents that are talked about here. But it has been yes a long time.
2: Yeah, he, he as far as I can see, he was a widower, and she may or may not have it says he they say she met he, they met after her first marriage had broken up, whereas actually it 's quite possible that they broke her first marriage up well that 's generally speaking how people get into second marriages other than become widowers and so on by and large, most relationships uh, in an adult life are based on at least one partner having cheated upon or split up with another previous partner because they have to really don't they because otherwise they're not going to be available i think people know that um uh, pretty well but as danny quite rightly says i mean you're up against donald trump grabbing by the pussy donald trump um it really looks like, I mean, it, it's so tame by respect, uh, by, <laughs> by, by contrast, that you think actually the problem is it just looks dull and adds <laughs> to the idea that Joe Biden is really extraordinary. What an incredibly dull way to be adulterous.
1: Which is all part of the brand. It's all part of the brand. Uh, Just finally, um, Danny. I I mean, I I, I feel like I'm on commission, but I know you've got a book out this week. You wrote about it in the uh, (laughs) yes. um, You wrote about it in the Times uh, this week, Uh, but you you revealed. Which I didn't. think I knew this. You you collect autographs.
3: Well, I certainly did when I was a kid. I mean, the sort of kid type of autographs, you know, Steve Berryman uh, at a charity match or whatever. But I just found I only had five left from that period, which was Mervyn Day, the West Ham goalkeeper. Sid James, you know, I met outside Colour Fruits in Hendon Central. Uh, and, um, and then, but also, and I had to admit this because it was about my obsession with politics, Ray Buckton, the, the uh, trade union leader... Uh, Douglas heard from when he was a backbench MP and also Norman St. John Stevens, whom I quite remember meeting when my mum took me on a visit to the House of Commons. And I thought those were pretty odd autographs for <laughs> a kid to get, but not pretty odd autographs for me because I'm now collecting uh, the autographs of everybody who's been prime minister. I've just obtained one of William Pitt, the younger, at a very good price. And uh, I'm really, uh, really uh, working. The problem is that Winston Churchill's unbelievably expensive. But when you say and without intruding into your private finances, how how much does a does a pit the younger cost you? Well, actually, it cost £192, and um, that is a real bargain for Pick the Younger uh, uh, autograph, And but, although by far the most I've paid for any of the autographs, you know, because Robert Peel, £60. You can buy Tommy Cooper's autographs more expensive than Robert Peel's, uh, because obviously my, my hobby is sufficiently eccentric. Uh, but the problem is Winston Churchill, you know, £3,000, £2,500, very expensive, can't start doing that. It's a bit, that is a bit mad. Well, it depends how well the book sells, presumably. Um, uh,
1: D- David, <laughs> um but, oh no, First of all, how do you know that it's Pitt the Younger? Is it, and it's not just
3: David um, scribbling on a bit of paper and then sticking it the Oh, that's on eBay good. Well, you've free. got to buy from reputable dealers. I mean, I, my, my experience of eBay is not great, but you know, people don't. Actually, um, in per- it's an entire letter, and I recognise Pitt the Youngest handwriting. That's how sad I am.
2: <laughs> David, have you got any uh, famous autographs? Well, it just something makes you want to know what Danny's worst experience on eBay trying to get one of these uh, <laughs> trying to trying to get one of these uh, signatures is. I mean, I, I, the thing I want to say about this is that this entire discussion should remind any listener who is unclear about this that I am the normal one of us two, <laughs> um, and the, nor- uh, the normal half of Finklebit, and, and that Danny is actually the peculiar one. I think this is very important when judging what you hear us say, particularly when we disagree.
3: On eBay, they have these things there. One time I came across a picture, which I while well, I was looking for something else that said was a picture of Pamela Anderson, and it said, condition used. And I wondered what for. <laughs> well, I think on that note,
1: uh, I, I think we'll leave it there. Um, uh, Danny uh, Finkelstein and David Ivanovich Finkelvich, as they're known. Somebody's texted in saying that their car idea is that Danny and David should do a Wallace and Gromit-style motorbike and sidecar arrangement. It's only a matter of time, uh, frankly. I should have pointed out, of course, if you want to read David and uh, Danny writing in The Times, you can obviously pick up a copy of the paper or subscribe. Go to times.radio forward slash subscribe so you can read uh, their columns every week in The Times. If you like what you're hearing, you can listen to the whole of my Times radio show. Either listen back on the Times radio app or you can listen live Monday to Thursday 10 till 1. We'll have more on the episode
2: after this.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
1: Let's stick now with um, uh, what's happening in the news and how the public um, reacts uh, to it. It's that time of the week where we like to pick over the polls with our two favourite pollsters, Chris Curtis from YouGov. Morning, Chris. Morning, Matt. And Deborah Mattison from uh, Britain Things. Morning, Deborah.
6: Morning.
1: Uh, now, we'll come to what sort of car the government will be in a moment. I've been asking people all that uh, that all morning. If you haven't sent it in yet, if the government was a car, what, what would it be? Text us 8722, start your message with the word TIMES or tweet us at TIMES Radio, because I know this is your um, your, uh, your pet subject, ever. so we'll come to that in a moment. Uh, but first of all, Chris, you've been, um, been asking people again what they think of, uh, you know, the government and how it's been handling things and Gavin Williamson and what. So what's the latest in terms of uh, government approval this morning? morning?
5: Um, we don't know. And the reason we don't know is because there's been a power outage at YouGov HQ this morning. Um, so we haven't been able to run the numbers yet. But what we do know um, is that the public have not responded well um, to how the government has been handling the recent education crisis. So 75% of the public um, said in our poll yesterday that they think the government has handled this badly compared to just 6% who say they think it's uh, it's been handled um, well, so that's just 6%, which is tiny, practically nobody. And even going further than that, uh, by a margin of about two to one, lots of people don't have an opinion, but of those that do, by a margin of about two to one, the public thought yesterday, uh, before the latest announcement, that now was the time for Gavin William to resign. So that was 40% say should resign, just 21% thought he should, uh, he should stay in his role.
1: And quite a lot of don't-knows as well, which was no, people, because when I was tweeting about this yesterday, people were pointing out, you know, the big chunk of don't-knows. Actually, when you compared it, when you asked the same question about Dominic Cummings earlier in the year, um, Mm -hmm. more
5: people had a view on it. Why do you think that difference is there? Well, I think one of the main things is that this story is about exam results and the government collectively making decisions which the public don't like on exam results, whereas with Dominic Cummings, the story was about Dominic Cummings and the things that Dominic Cummings did specifically that the public don't like. So when you're therefore asking should Gavin Williamson resign, as opposed to whether should Dominic Cummings resign, Gavin Williamson's a lesser part of this story. So you're going to get higher number of don't knows. I think that's a big part of that.
1: Uh, no, I know you need to wait until your power is back on so you can rerun the the data for this week. But one of the things that struck me in your your tracker uh, on you know, there were so many trackers that you go run asking all sorts of questions. But is Boris Johnson incompetent? Being one of the questions, and I was really surprised to see that. Uh, the number of people who say he's incompetent is up now up to 49%, which is the highest it's been since just after he took over as prime minister. I mean, it, it, it's it's a complete turnaround, actually, from the sort of uh, the, the middle of the, the pandemic or the, at least the start of the lockdown, uh, when 55% said he was competent, 31% incompetent. Uh, it's now sort of completely switched, 49% incompetent, 35% competent.
5: Um, that's quite a bad place for, for a leader to be, isn't it? Uh, I mean, look, this is going to be such an exciting uh, political science experiment, if nothing else, because you've got a Conservative government... You know, the conservative brand is associated with competency, but a conservative government that's increasingly seen as incompetent. And you've got a Labour opposition, the Labour brand, usually associated with incompetency, run by people who are increasingly seen as competent. Now, seeing how that plays out and seeing who, yeah, how, how well, who, who's most likely to win an election in those circumstances, I think it's going to be really interesting. And it's actually going to answer a lot of questions that we don't, Currently, know the answers to about how elections and public opinion works. It's going to be really, really fascinating. I think we're going to learn a lot about public opinion as we sort of go through this period.
1: Uh, in the interest of balance, I should point out the same question is Keir Starmer incompetent? 44% say competent, 41% don't know, and 15% mm. say he's incompetent. De- Deborah, is it a problem that the main answer you get when you ask a question about Keir Starmer is still don't know? When we're, what, four or five months into him being leader of the opposition?
6: I think it's something he certainly needs to start addressing and quite quickly. I mean, we asked people what were the words that sprung to mind when they thought about the Labour Party. And the word that people most often used was quiet. Uh, They're seen as a little bit invisible. And if people are being more critical than that, they'll say a bit irrelevant. So... There isn't yet a clear and settled view. Now, on the one hand, you have quite a long time, probably till, uh, you know, till the next general election. um, And it's been a very difficult time for the opposition party to establish itself. But it is something they need to start to address. Um, They really do need and start to build on. They've got some positives that they can build on. They're just not coming through clearly enough at the moment.
1: Uh, One of the things uh, that struck me yesterday when the government was in uh, a pickle, uh, I think it's fair to say, uh, Keir Starmer just was sort of randomly firing out tweets uh, one, incompetence has become the go- this government's watchword, which is mean, not that catchy. It's not weak, weak, weak or something like that. Um, I'm also not sure watchword's the right word. Um, he then followed it up with, this has been a fiasco. Uh, at a time of national emergency, this is no way to run a country. It gets him lots of retweets. It doesn't tell me anything about what the opposition might be doing. Uh, and um, people pointing out he stopped short of calling for Gavin Williamson to resign, which I suppose is the sort of, is that the last resort of the opposition, Deborah, that you call someone's resignation?
6: Well, I, th- I think if you think it's not very likely to happen, there's probably not much chance, ah. n- not much point in calling for it. And then, it, you know, what you've asked for not happening. Um, but I think that obviously what he is doing is to echo what people feel. So, you know, when we ask people to, uh, you know, the words they use to describe the government, shambolic, was the one that they most often used. People said, this is yet another debark. One shambles after the other, lurch from one crisis to the next, changing the rules every day. And there is increasingly this view that they are out of control. And I guess he's building on that part of the job of opposition, clearly, is to oppose. And I I, I think you could say he's doing that effectively and and tapping into the, the public mood. But of course, as we get closer to a point where people are making their minds up, he is going to have to set out his own stall and I would say he needs to start doing that now.
1: I mean, I suppose that's the thing, isn't it, is that the government are in a mess and the front pages of the papers are having fun with it and people are getting cross on news bulletins and on social media... The Labour Party needs to do more than just tut and say, oh, have you seen what they've done now? Don't they, really?
6: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they have a real issue to address as well. I mean, it's interesting I think we're going to come on and talk about cars. But when I asked people what car they would associate with the Labour Party, I got a very unclear response. And I think this plays back to the same thing. There were a lot, you know, some people were, were talking about the past. They talked about an old fashioned Mini um, but others had very different ideas. There just isn't a clear view of what the party, the Labour Party, as it stands now, is about, and that's something they clearly have to address.
1: So, just explain uh, before we get into uh, cars uh, why why do you ask that question, um, and why is it a useful sort of way of getting into people's um, thought processes? Y-
6: yes, I'm gl- I, w- I was going to insist that we cover this actually, because I-, I could see people having a lot of fun with it on Twitter, and it is a very fun thing to do. But the reason why we ask this as qualitative researchers is because it's just a great way of kind of digging underneath the surface. So, So Chris has got the numbers. They will tell you that, you know, X percent of people feel this or that, but they won't Necessarily tell you why, and what we 're trying to do with these they 're called projective techniques it 's where you you try to encourage people to to project what they feel in a different way to sort of reveal something slightly different or a sort of deeper truth what we 're trying to do there is to get underneath those numbers and speak to the, the the sort of deeper feelings that people have about a brand, about a party, about a politician about a particular policy area. So that's why we do it. And it's incredibly revealing. And when I look at the, the cars that people have, have listed, there's such a consistent picture building up here about how they feel about this government. Um, so I don't go know, then. do you want give, me to yeah, yeah, give, some yes, of the ones? Give
1: us some examples and I'll give you some of the ones that people have sent yeah, in. Yeah,
6: and, and uh, you know, as I say, this is, this is really consistent. So we've got a Range Rover, showy, but works through its resources at an amazing pace. I've got a flashy-looking, brand-new, shiny car on the outside but with a useless engine that billows cl- clouds of black smoke as it pootles along, basically all image and no substance. Or I've got an Alfa Romeo Giulietta, looks sleek and in control but never far away from mechanical problems. So consistently this sense that it kind of looks okay, it's what you bought, but actually you bought a lemon. Um, and then you know, a couple <laughs> of other ideas, too, which connect into that. One person put chauffeur-driven. The government's just not very involved. They leave it up to others. And then another person put, and I didn't know what this car was, actually a Trabant, I'm I'm not very well up on cars, but they helpfully wrote useless, but it was the only one available. <laughs> so that told its own story. I didn't need to know what a trabant looked like.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think it's from the uh, It's a former East German car. Um, oh, yeah, OK. So it's, it's, quite, it's quite old school, I think. Uh, you know, we've had we, uh, When I was asking people to text and tweet in earlier this morning, then we had a, quite a few that talked about being chauffeur-driven. Uh, someone else, uh, Jazz, says this Tory government is a Sinclair C5 on a busy motorway on the road to hell. Um, uh, Will <laughs> in Coventry says the government's a shady windows BMW Audi or Merc with suss expect moves and doesn't answer reasonable questions when pulled up and has its policies searched. Uh, someone else in the text says it's the DeLorean, glitzy but low-powered. Uh, and uh, who's this? Someone else on the t- on the tweet saying the government is like an electric black car- cab, London-centric, unsuitable for its role, but always capable of tight U-turns.
6: Yeah, and I mean, I think, you know, if you look at those, you can see people have had fun with that. But actually, there's a very serious story underlying that. And if I was the government, I'd be very worried because it's incredibly consistent. Everybody's saying the same thing. And it's, you know, it's basically all image and no substance.
1: Uh, Chris, how, how uh, difficult is it for to shake off a reputation for um, uh, incompetence or, you know, being a shambles? Because, um, you know, when Boris Johnson arrived as prime minister just over a year ago, 56% said he was incompetent. At the height of the pandemic, that went down to 31%. And now it's back up to 49 uh, so it does seem like, you know, events come and go and, you know, it is possible to draw a line under them. And no doubt that within a week we'll have talk of a September relaunch and maybe a reshuffle and all that sort of stuff. Is it at what point does this become a sort of more than
5: a blip in something that really sticks? Normally um, true. Uh, in most cases, once you've lost it, it is very, very hard to get it back. I mean, just look at Jeremy, uh, Jeremy Corbyn obviously had it in the 2017 election. He slowly lost it. I think you described it as being moving beyond Pete Corbyn, and he, he could never get it back again. Actually, Boris Johnson is one of the very, very few politicians who has managed to see and it, the surge that he saw over the course of last year, starting off as a very, very unpopular politician and then rising in popularity. Now, I don't think that he can pull that trick off again so i think that once he's lost it it's going to be very very difficult for him to get it back and this is why i think you know we're talking about these events you know these these decisions the government are making that the public are reacting to negatively at the moment and we're talking about the fact that at the moment you know the conservatives still leading the polls and that's okay but actually in the long run i still think it's going to make a difference this drip 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 quite constantly now for a few months, and it doesn't look like it's going to end soon, of making decisions that make this government look incompetent, and the constant repetitive attack line from Labour, which they're now settling in on, you know, sort of slightly dodgy slogans aside, that this government is incompetent, I think eventually it's going to have a real impact, and I think it is going to be very, very difficult for Boris Johnson, at least, to come back from that once that attack lands. Um... So, so yeah, it's difficult. I mean, the you know, the, the, the chances are, well, you know, once, once it's landed, the Conservatives will do what they often do and just just swap leader. But um, I I think it still is going to matter a lot. That's all we've got time
1: for on this episode of the Red Box podcast. Uh, you can now listen back to my whole show on the Times Radio app, where you can also now listen to all of the Times podcasts, including Red Box too. Make sure you subscribe and review at the Red Box podcast wherever you listen. But for now, for me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
4: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy.